Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday evening over here. Um... I'm gonna try to really tired. I'm suffering in the feet. I don't know this week. I must have gone too far. Anyway, the uh, the thing is, I want to do the tefillah podcast that I committed myself to tonight, and uh, move the story forward historically. Uh, the tefillah podcast is sponsored by the Stefanskis, and <clears throat> here we go. Uh, I mentioned before we came to Yontem, and I did a little diversion because of the. Piyutim and all that, to talk about the fundamental idea of prayer in Judaism, uh, the basics. Uh, as I said, we don't know exactly what happened to Bayes Rishon. Uh, not really. <clears throat> we have some indications of this, that, and the other. We see a lot of Carbonos. Uh, there had to be prayers of some sort, but there's nothing mentioned. And then, basically, it's destroyed. And the Jews go, as we all know, into Babylonian exile for 70 years. And most of the Jews remain. Don't make Aliyah later on, right? They remain in Babylonia. And now we have a funny situation. What exactly is the matzah of, of the Jews in Babel? I'll tell you something very interesting. <clears throat> I don't know if it's true or not. I'll tell you something very interesting. <clears throat> if you go by Doris Rishonim, notice the, the Haredi version of history, the Yeshivish version of history, so Bavel was a bastion of Frumkite, of Haredism. Israel wasn't. And as the Mishnah says, Ezra, took Ezra when he came to Israel, second Aliyah, he uh, brought all the Pesulim with him. And uh, that would mean not only the, uh, the Pesulim of various sorts, even Ashkafically. So you can read this in the book by Victor Miller, but he, he always summarizes <coughs> the Doris Rishonim, if you're into that. Uh, I forget what it's called, Torination, maybe, or something like that. And um, <clears throat> you'll see the bubble is like the, the fortress of, of Torah Yiddishkeit. Whereas Israel wasn't. Israel went ups and downs. Israel, you have Tzedukim later on. You have Baisusim. You have this group. You have that group. The Misyavdim and who knows what else. Um, in the time of Ezra Nechem, you have the intermarrying Kohanim. You know, a lot of corruption. But in bubble, they'll say everything was 100%. Right, let it be. <clears throat> if that's so, I, I say this. Because if you read Yechesko, it doesn't seem that that way is true. But let's go with that Hanukkah for a moment. So, here you are, the Jewish people. There's no more base on Migdash. Everything is destroyed, as we know. <clears throat> uh, they still want to remain Jewish, whatever the dynamics of that was. Like I said, however you understand the dynamics of it, as described in the book of Ezekiel. But they want to stay Jewish. And... Um, how do you do that? There's no more carbonus. The Kohanim, the priesthood, is in desuetude. It's uh, no point of being a Kohen anymore. No base of English. As far as I see, it do, they don't talk about offering carbonus in Babel. Now, maybe they did, you know? I don't know. What I mean to say is, base of English destroyed. Maybe now we offer carbonus. I was like, don't give me the Talmudic discussions, you know, shots, heterobomus, not heterobomus. That's the rabbinic literature trying to come up with 
their approach. Doesn't necessarily mean that's what people did. In other words, the Gemara may represent the official, correct Torah scholarship view. That doesn't mean that's what people did. I'm asking a sociology question. What did Hamonam do? And where I'm going with this is, had to be, if you use your brain, some kind of tefillah, something like, had to be some way of being Jewish. No temple, no Shemitah, you know, no basic institutions of Judaism. So, I mean, if you're a learner, maybe that'll do it. You know, you get together every day, you learn, I don't know. You know, that I can hear, possibly. Like they say, um, Ezra didn't make Aliyah to was an old man because he was learning by Baruch Mandaria. Okay, let that be. I can hear that. But what about for the the, the, the great number of people who are not learners, right? They're not learners. How, how do you go about expressing your Judaism? How do you celebrate your Shabbos, your Pesach, and all the other questions? These are fundamental questions. And I guess where I'm going is, <clears throat> once you have Tzishabov and the destruction of Bayes Rishon, we have a new era in Jewish history which doesn't go away. And we're part of it till today, and that's called the Diaspora. The Tfutzot as the Hebrew translation, because Diaspora is Greek for dispersion, and Tfutzot, Tfutzot is Hebrew for that. You know, Beit Tfutzot and all that. Now, uh, or Gola, the Gaulis. Uh, all these words are used. That simply means that you have a physical fact where a veldt of Jews are not going to be in Israel. <clears throat> okay? Not going to be in Israel. This situation intensifies because when the Babylonian Empire uh, goes down the drains, uh, not too long after Nebuchadnezzar's time, and the Persian Empire takes over, the Jews move throughout the Persian Empire. Didn't Haman say, So either that was rhetoric or it's true. The Jews are all over the place. How are you practicing your Judaism to any degree whatsoever if you live in Afghanistan, which is part of the Persian Empire? Or you live in southern Egypt, as we know from archaeology, with a Jewish garrison in Yeb, an elephant time, near Aswan Dam. You know, they, you, can, you can Google it, you'll see. It had to be some kind of prayer. You get where I'm going with this? <clears throat> so simply, besides the basic uh, religious notion that I need to talk to God, there's also the communal notion that we that, that no man is an island and you can't be Jewish unless unless you have some kind of community. I mean, theoretically it's possible, but Lamaisa, people move to Baltimore, people move to Muncie, people move to big cities because they want to be in community. They move to Chicago, wherever it is. It's hard to be, you know, on your own and be from elsewhere, right? Unless you set up an artificial network. I think the Lubavitchers they have some system, you know, where um, uh, what do you call it? They, you know, uh, they can do it by, by Zoom or something like that. Um, but I'm talking about in regular times. I mean, Zoom is a community. You know, now, you know they have classes and everything. Now, uh, where I'm going with this is the communal necessity had to require some sort of Jews coming together to form a community and it had to be on a religious basis because there was no national basis. So all those words or a bunch of verbiage to point to the fact that there had to emerge, and there did emerge, in one fashion or another, through a fascinating process of evolution that we don't know the details of, the synagogue, the shul, the Beit HaKnesset, call it what you want. The synagogue, of course, is a Greek term. So, obviously, it dates from the fact, I don't know if you know your history, but very, very briefly, <clears throat> there was the Babylonians who destroyed the base of English and exiled Jews of Babylonia. Not too long afterwards, 
the Persians took over, give the Persians 200 years without getting into, you know, the Persian Gulf chronology stuff. Give it about 200 years, and then the Greeks come in, or Alexander the Great, okay? And uh, he and his successors. So then for the next couple hundred years, the Jews are living primarily in the Greek world, if I can use that term, the Hellenistic world. Again, I don't want to go into details and bore you, but, you know, it wasn't Greek, it was Hellenistic, Macedonia, but it doesn't matter. So there are Jewish communities scattered all over the place. If you look at a map of uh, the Middle East, uh, the former Persian Empire, and now extending into the Eastern Mediterranean, what you and I call Turkey, Egypt, Greece, Southern Italy, North Africa, places like that. You have Jewish communities. They moved there for business. That's where people move, play, wherever they go, they go for business. Okay, so now a whole bunch of Jews move to Carthage or Syracuse or, you know, uh, Crete or uh, Byzantium, any of these cities. So how do you stay Jewish? Now, maybe you don't, but if you care to, how do you stay Jewish? i got to hook up with other Jews, baby. got to get to with other Jews. So we're going to have to create something called the Beit HaKnesset, which, as you know, it doesn't say Beit HaTfilah. It's Beit HaKnesset. Knesset is a gathering place, which goes to show you the primary character of it was Knesset for Jews to meet other Jews. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, from a very pristine point of view, a shul should only be strictly for nothing but, you know, man and God and Kedusha and Davening and so on and so forth. And that's true. There are denim like that. It certainly is true. Uh, however, I think from day one, it's also been a base at Knesset. And to the degree that it fosters Jewish community, alongside Jewish prayer, you know, uh, is doing something good. So where I'm going with is that we don't know what happened to Bayez Rishon, but we do know that there were um, synagogues. Maybe That's a Greek term. There are other names for Jews used in Bavel and other places, like Kanishta, you know, uh, where Jews gathered, and they davened, they prayed. Now, did, was there a Nusachat Filah? No, in the sense that there was a central nusach used by everybody, the way it is today, no. Uh, couldn't have been. Uh, had to be a messy situation. In Egypt, the Jews just developed a habit of reciting these and these prayers, uh, maybe in Greek. We know by the time the process of Hellenization is over, I mean has reached maturity, the Jews in Egypt and other places in the Eastern Mediterranean or doing Kriyas HaTorah in Greek. Notice they're not reading the Torah on Shabbos morning in Hebrew, but rather they're reading it in Greek. This is the famous Mishnah in, what is it, Megillah? It talks about, you know, Shevet Torah, So that all presupposes there's something called the Basic Anesis. And Basic Anesis presupposes there's some sort of prayer. However, what the Matbeah of the Tefillah was, is, you know, we, we, we don't have enough information on that. At least I don't know it, Okay. I mean, I'm not familiar with it. Um, and I don't think it's out there. Uh, and Lee Beomerly, the way it happened was everybody made Shabbos for themselves. In Greece, they said certain prayers in Greek, uh, some formal, some informal. Maybe a formal prayer or two developed popularity, the way songs do with us. People pick up a Karbach tune or not. Now they pick up a Shweki tune or something like that. I don't know, you know, all this stuff. It, you know, gets around, or it doesn't. And, uh, therefore, don't tell me Shimon Esri, Krishna, and all the rest of it. Lee Biomerli, that probably what happened was that uh, the essential prayer, if you're Jewish, 
in Bayashini period is simply Krishna. Because the Greeks and the others all believe in many gods. As soon as you say Shema Yisrael, you're making a, a, quite a controversial statement. You're making a statement that goes against the grain. Right from that alone, right from that alone, that's a communal prayer. If everybody, think of what I'm saying. If everybody got together once a week, and who says they got together every day? In fact, I'm sure they didn't. I'm talking about in Rome, in Alexandria, in Athens, in Sparta, in Byzantium, in Damascus, you know, in, in Alexandria, and, and, and so on and so forth. If they got together, I'm sure the Iker was to say Krishna, and maybe another couple of prayers like that, you know, which talk about the oneness and the unity of God, La Fuki, the Greeks, La Fuki, the Egyptians, and everybody else. And that's your Iker prayer, because you declared your basic allegiance to the basic principle of Judaism, which in Chanami is Hashem Okein Shemachad. Okay? Now, did they add some things from the Tehillim around? Who knows when the Tehillim were put together, meaning in the final form that we have it today. We say in Judaism that the, that the Tanakh was edited by the Anshigas Agdola. That's true, but only in a general way. Only in a general way. If you want to get down and dirty, there are um, later references in rabbinic literature to different books you know, the people were still uh, arguing about such as Shira Shem and Kohelis and things like this. I don't have it, but I remember years ago, uh, Professor Lyman, you know, I think maybe it was his dissertation or something on the canonization of the of the Jewish Bible when he went into this, the end, you know. And by the way, you can't because there aren't that many sources to tell you. When you get to classical Judaism, ancient Judaism, as they call it in the academic world, you're dealing with a paucity of sources. There's not a lot to play with. But as I said before, there's common sense. And common sense tells you there were synagogues. People did get together. The way you express your Jewishness is religious. The difference between a Jew and a pagan was a religious difference. You hear what I'm saying? It wasn't so much an ethnic one. Why do I say not so much an ethnic one? The Jewish religion has an ethnic core to it, but there were a ton of converts to Judaism in the Bayashani period. I think I've told you that on other occasions. This is a period when Judaism was a missionary religion. It's also an era when the paganism was going through a tremendous crisis of confidence as part of world history, okay? And, um, uh, you know, people really saying, is this uh, gods and Olympus, does it really make sense? Some, many people were saying that. Now, I don't say all those questioners were all going to Judaism, but some were, and so you had a doggone large amount of people throughout the synagogues of the Greco-Roman world, maybe not in Bavla, maybe yes, I don't know. Uh, who said like this, I'm interested in this Judaism business, you know? <clears throat> At least I, I want to check it out. And it's a dover you do it that the synagogues, as I call them, were full of people who were not halachically Jewish uh, in this era, these centuries. Um, it's one of the reasons that the you know teaching in Greek popped up. And uh, you just had to get used to it. And, and whatever the official Torah scholarship rabbinical position is, don't confuse that with what people did. And uh, the best example I always like to bring up is in the Shemona Esri that we see on Saturday morning where you have Shabbos and we all say, oh, only a Jew can keep Shabbos. And so on and so forth. And yet, what kind of prayer do you see on Saturday morning? Hear what I just said? God did not give the Shabbos the Goye Ho'aratzos or the Ovde Basilim. Right? I'm going to see them. See, so just mentioned three types that are crowding the synagogues that whoever wrote this doesn't like. You got your Goye Haratz showing up. You got your Ovde uh, Pesilim showing up. 
Say, wait a minute. If you got the Ovid Basilim, what's he doing in a show? The answer is, like many people, it's syncretism. I like on Saturday to, to, to worship in Judaism, and on Sunday morning I like to go to church. And by the way, on Tuesday morning I like to do a little cannibalism. What's your problem? <laughs> what's your problem? You know, a little this, a little that, a little that. And this guy's protesting. You know, you can't be over the Basilim and do Shabbos. There's a third group, Arelim. These are people who don't want to circumcise. Plenty of Goyim were interested in joining the Jews, but not at a high price. Once the Jews said, if you're a Zohar, you got to have a bris milah, a lot of people say, yes, that's where I stop, <laughs> right? <laughs> I like bagels. <laughs> you don't have to be a Jewish to like Levi's, as they used to say. You know, I like Kiddush Rishon. I even like Kiddush Shani. I like also, by the way, I like the speech in the morning. I'm, I'm very serious. You know, Rabbi Fran's uh, uh, tour going lecture. I like that. But bris milah is a little bit, <laughs> you know, as as above and beyond the call of duty. Then I'm not ready to take on. And whoever's right, it's a very racist kind of language, except it's not a word in racism, it's a word. You have to be mulim, not a radlim. You have to be kimpi goya rosa. You have to you have to shed your previous identity and join a new identity. You see? And that's incorporated in the Shemonesri. I don't say that was in the original Shemonesri. I don't know. I'm simply telling you, there's no question in my mind, and there shouldn't be any question in yours now that I pointed out to you, that this text in the Shemonesri on Saturday morning, which is ancient, goes back to a time when these issues, Arelim, Goyerosis, and so on and so forth, were uh, hot wire um, issues, hot button issues. You understand? By the way, you know the news like I know the news. The Israeli Supreme Court the other thing you want to introduce reform conversions, this conversion, that conversion, you'll have the same kind of rhetoric. Oh, this person's not Jewish. Uh, you know, it's a, uh, uh, we don't, we don't count these people in, but at that time you did. So where I'm going with all this is if there was a proliferation of synagogues and there was all throughout this world, and it only got more intense, there had to be a synagogue service. The synagogue was not a place where people got together and had Jabotinsky speeches, you know, uh, how to overthrow the Greeks and set up a Jewish state in Palestine. That's not what they did, right? There were Jewish communities elsewhere. Their identity is a religious identity. It is an identity which is countercultural. They're going against the grain of where the Hamonam out there believes. So that the Jews did do, and they, and they were proud of it. They weren't afraid to do that. But it's going to be a religious you know, uh, uh, manifestation of, of separateness. And therefore, you're talking about prayers. So there had to be tefillah evolving, as I said, part in Greek, part in other languages, throughout this area. There was no e- attempt, as far as we know, of all the synagogues to get together, like by the Reform, and come up with a common prayer book. Right? Nothing like that. So all you can say is that by Shani period, it's an organic evolution of... Uh, diaspora of Jewish communities centering upon a synagogue, which is a base hatafila, not simply a base hakanesis, and therefore there had to be some kind of tefillah, and had to be some some kind of formal way, because we have people come from all over the place, had to be some kind of formal way. That doesn't mean that they had one matbeah. What I probably what I imagine is there were a thousand matbeas. Every shul did it different way. Maybe they had some things in common. Like I said before, I'm sure that wherever you went. And Iker part of the davening was they say Shema Yisrael Shem Kedusha Mechad. They had to be okay, and maybe read some pesukim from the Chumash. Maybe did not. Okay, maybe did not. 
Um, and the other thing we know about this, we have sources on, was a Kriya Torah. So uh, uh, let's put it this way: there was Saturday morning services, uh, and Iker part of it was reading the portion of the week with a maturgam and so others, and darshaning on the portion of the week. So knows the Iker part of the davening, as far as I can tell, was the lesson, the sermon. Uh, from the parsha of the week, so you know this week is parsha shmini. Oh my goodness, you know not even a veal. Uh, oh, here's a better one: kosher food, kosher food. You know if you you are what you eat. If you eat a pig, then you know you'll end up be a, a, a pig. You know those kind of speeches very common in the uh, Hellenistic era. You look at Philo's writings and Aristeus and others, and you know the people would talk about it. You know in other words, it's interesting. It's not boring. You get it. Uh, remember, Ezra Nehemiah's system is the Israeli system was uh, you finish the Torah in three years. So, in other the the Kriyas Torah was much shorter, it's one third. And uh, with the Matorgam and all the rest of it, I think that's a nice part of the Domini. So, I imagine something happened when people get together. They would recite some stuff in Greek, you know, uh, maybe, you know, where did Bene Avram eat the Gakab? I don't know. Oh Lord, we look to thee. Whatever they came up with, I'm sure the Shema had to be part of it. Uh, I noticed that the rice, I'm talking about what people did. The Shema had to be an acre part of it. Maybe some other prayers, you know, possibly here and there. Uh, do we know about Shema and Esri? Eh, like I'm doing that? Eh, not, yes and no. Not really. And the Kriya Torah. Okay. Uh, it's very possible, very likely, that they use some kind of Greek hymn or whatever, with Jewish words, or something, or, or, or something slightly different. And a rabbi from Eretz Yisrael, who would come to Rome, well, you know, would not be 100% comfortable with what they're doing in Rome. But, you know, that's how it goes. Didn't you guys who learned the uh, Dafyomi, didn't you recently have, when the rabbis are dealing with Todas Romi, the head of the Jewish community in Rome, it was a big uh, fundraiser for the yeshivas, and he does a carbon Pesach. Not really, he does Gedim Bakulis, you know. He, he, at his table, they do a a karm pesach, and they basically say you're a gvir, so we won't bother. But you know, it's not right. So that's the uh, difference between you know the formal rabbinical approach, um, which today is the Haredi definition, and uh, what the Hamonam does, traditional Judaism. Torah is like this: I like yeshivas, but I also like my karm pesach, even though I'm wrong. That's who I am, you know. So this informality had to be the first layer of what we call today davening in the sitter. Now, the Rambam doesn't like what I just said. And the reason is because the Rambam is always looking to tie things up in a very nice bow. That is his approach. It's the godless, but it's also a problem with the Rambam and everything. He's got a simple, clear explanation for everything, whether or not it's exactly historically accurate. I'm thinking, for example, of the difference approach between the Rambam on the one hand and Shvira going on the other hand in the history of the Tereshvapeh. According to Rambam, it's a nice, neat package. Nothing was written. One day, Rabbi Yudha got up and wrote out the whole Mishnah from scratch, and so on and so forth, and everything flows from that. Mashenki and Goshur gone, oh, they were already starting to form a few oral texts, and then there were confusion, and then there were other texts interfering, until after a gone some messy business, Mishnah, like, a, like a ship in a storm, you ended up with, you know, the final third recension of the Mishnah of Rabbi Kiva and then Rameir uh, by Rabbi Hanasi and even the Mishnah of Rabbi Kiva 
was you know based on Hillel's Mishnah as opposed to Shalom. You know, it's a very messy business, but on the other hand, it's 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 accurate. You get it? After all, Shiragon was not nobody, and he backs everything up with with uh, Chazals. Uh, I'm not making money on this, but if you want to see the Shiragon inside, get the new edition. They have my uh, translation, you know, of the Gera Shiragon, you know, the art scroll in the introduction volume. But it's a little confusing. It's confusing because that's real. So, so one way of learning this is the Rambam, in which it's a nice, simple package. The other way is learning the messy. So what I just presented you, and all I can ever do, I get, I never get tired of repeating. This is how I understand it. I wasn't there. I can't prove it exactly. But this is how I, you know, there are others who know more about this than me, but there are people who know less. This is this is my understanding of how it evolved, especially knowing what I do about the Hellenistic era among the Jews scattered throughout the Eastern Mediterranean. Again, before I depart from this, just imagine, as I know you are familiar with this, the great synagogue in Alexandria, where they said it was so big, they had to wave a flag to hear on me. So they, notice they had dominating. And that's in Bayashani. Correct? That's in Bayashani. So there was a temple in Jerusalem. Listen closely. There was a temple in Jerusalem. There was also a temple in Egypt. That's the Migdash Chonyo. I think many of you know what I'm talking about. There was a competing base on Migdash in Mitzrayim. Remember the Gemara Megill talks about a coin who served in A, can he serve in B? And in addition to that, there was a synagogue, what they called the Basilion or something like that, um, which you had this gigantic show that we all have heard about one time or another, that the Gemara talks about waving the flag, it was so big, come here, the Amen, and the people sat by, uh, uh, what was it again, the uh, professions, you know, the doctors all sit here, the tailors all sit there, uh, to use modern terminology, all the real estate guys <laughs> are in the back, you know, Handling in the middle of Shabbos, Nishtav Shabbos Karet, you know. But fine, let it be. But that means that although there's a base of English and they're offering carbonus every day, Yoma Balayla, carbon and carbon and this, that, and the other, there's also this big synagogue that people are going to. So you see, in the Second Temple era, it becomes clear to us that, you, that Judaism is a two track system already. Uh, not by design, but by evolution. Uh, the Chumash doesn't talk about a synagogue, but necessity, the scattering of the Jews everywhere, forced the creation, the, the gelling, the evolution of synagogues. And synagogues are religious institutions, not Zionist nationalist institutions. And uh, because that wouldn't have flown in the Hellenistic monarchies, that'd be only a religious thing. And uh, therefore, the focus is on religious services. And since the Goyim have uh, prayers, so the Jews have prayers. Right, the Greeks all had various types of prayers and worship in their uh, services. So the Jews developed theirs. Uh, this is how it seems to have gone on. Uh, I might point out that you remember in Yuma, I mean, we all remember this. Is the Tafiyomi there now? Uh, uh, at one point, the coin Gadol later in the Sechta picks up the you know as part of the Avodas Yom goes to the base of Knesset located on the Temple Mountain, where he reads from the Torah. Remember that, and he says. Yoser Mimasha Kosu Po or something like that. Uh, the point is there's a basic Knesset on the higher bias. I mean, why? It's a basic English. You don't need a, a show. You see sensibilities have changed and Jewish life had developed in such a way that there's an institution of the synagogue and that has to call forth some kind of formal prayer. Or I shouldn't say formal prayer. Some system of prayer. Okay. Now, was it in Greek? Was it in Hebrew? Uh, was it the way we have it? Pesukah de Zimra and this and that and the other. Not clear. Not clear. The Rambam, as I said before, doesn't agree with anything I just said. 
But the Ram has a very nice and neat package. Okay? A nice and neat package. And the Rambam basically uh, comes up with his own theory. And I don't know where he got this from. Notice, I know how to read a Rambam. And I'll read it to you in a second. And he has a, a particular reading of history. And he signs the most uh, remarkable uh, uh, significance to uh, a certain uh, point, uh, which is, uh, you know, kind of remarkable, but uh, that's what he does. And he, he will say that it's, you know, just like with Rabbi Hino Nasi, with the Mishnah, once upon a time there was no prayer, and then once, and then the Chacham got together and created a prayer. And when you woke up in the morning, there was something called the Siddur, and they did it as a public service, and from now on we're, we're, we're all the beneficiaries from that. A nice, neat package. Although, you do see from this Rambam, his take, and he has no hesitancy in saying, by his reason, there was nothing, no davening at all. I'm referring to the famous Rambam at the beginning of Hilchus Tefillah, in the Yad HaZaka, Hilchus Tefillah. And the Rambam says, uh, this is his historical disquisition. Now, I repeat, as far as I'm aware, I don't think this is from a Gemara. So we always have the question, where is the Rambam getting it from? You know, usually gets it from a Gemara, Chazal, or something like that. As far as I know, this is his own interpretation of the past. Uh, when he gets to the important part. Listen to this. The Rambam understands that there is a mitzvah to pray. Not in a minion and not in a shul or anything like that, just to pray. So even though it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible, thou shalt pray before the Lord, but he says, Avoda means that, Avoda shall believe. But a minion at Philos Minatora, will a Mishnah at Philos Dos Minatora, and Philos Aman Kavu Minatora. There was no shul, there was no such thing as Shachos Minchamayr, there's no specific time, uh, there's no specific number of, of Philos, and so on and so forth. You're on your own, like the Quakers. And that's why women are, are Potter. Now, I'm sorry, are, are, are Chai, because it's Shlos Mangro. Elochiva Mitzvah Zukachu. The Deraisa, as the Rambam understands it, the Deraisa is as follows. He feels, right? This is interesting, that every male and female has an obligation to pray and beg God uh, every day, at least once. But once is enough. And you have to say some praiseworthy things about Hashem. This is very artificial. I mean, He's even going so far as to say that the Raisa contains like the formula the way we have it now. So there's a formula that the Rambam understands was given by Moshe Rabbeinu to Klai Yisrael back in the desert. And the formula was uh, the minimum is you have to say something nice about God then you have to ask Him for something request and then you end by ending something nice. So you praise, and then you ask, and then you, um, what do you call it? And then, you know, you uh, uh, end up by praising. Okay? Uh, it was up to you, though, the Rambam says. If you were ragil, then you could dive in a great length. Uh, in other words, let's put it this way. If you naturally were a poet, like King David or somebody like that, or articulate, you could say, listen, I have a wish list over here. This, that, and the other. And let me tell you something. I don't think the king's operating right. And you can have a lot of things to say. On the other hand, If you are you're very inarticulate. You're not educated. You don't know more than 300 words. 
A lot of people like that, okay? It's hard to express uh, complex and abstract ideas. So all you can simply say is like this, Havni Bani Chaim Mizona, you know? <laughs> Give me money, children healthy, you know, like that. Uh, that's okay too. Bechein minyan atfilos. And how many times you daven? Up to you. Kol echad kfi cholto. Everybody according to what they're able to. Yesh mispal upam achaz biyom. Yesh mispal upam yom harbei. Okay, it could be like that. You know who prays a lot? A soldier in a battlefield, <laughs> right? The bullets are flying, the arrows are whizzing, and he's saying, okay, forget Mincha. I'm just saying, dear Lord, get me out of here now, right? And you have to face towards the base of Migdosh. It's a basic rule, and the Ramam said that's what they did in Bayez Rishon period. So the way the Ramam puts it up is as follows. Imagine ancient Jerusalem. You have King David. Oh, well, he's a natural poet. So he wake up in the morning and says, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, and so on and so forth. And uh, another guy would get up, you know, the janitor in King David's building. The janitor would say like this, uh, Top of the morning to you, Lord. You're looking very good today. Uh, get me a raise. I mean, I, need, I really need a raise. I said before, you're looking very good today. Uh, all inspired by you and Gvaldic. Don't forget the race. Right? Now, the advantage of this system that the Rambam lays out is at least it's not fakerai and it's not rote. Get it? You're not saying something somebody told you to say. Okay? Uh, it's, it's, it's it, you know, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's real. Like, uh, without being funny, <clears throat> without being funny, a guy who says like this, Lord, I need money. Right? I need that jackpot, baby. <laughs> I got debts over here. I need to bail out of this. Or like Tevin and Milchaker, if I were a rich man. You want to know something? He's saying that come on there. His mind is not wandering somewhere else. If there's another guy that's like this, oh, I'm in love with that girl. I want her to notice me. And uh, you agree. And when I pop the question, she should say yes. Or the girl's the same thing. He's, oh, that cute guy. Whatever. Say what you want. While they're saying that, they have a full kavana. Now, of course, is it selfish? It's about, yeah, I understand that, but it's a real, it's a real. It's like the Quakers, right? You say what you, what you say, you don't say anything extraneous. <clears throat> and according to the Rambam, that is the way God set it up, right? That's the way the Rabban Shalom likes it, because the Rabban Shalom didn't create a sitter and a Shemanesre and all the rest of it. He didn't do that. He said, I want a system where everybody talks to me, and whether, they, whether what they talk to me about is foolish or not foolish, I, God, will be the judge. Because as I said before, I could make fun of a boy saying, oh, find me that girl. Or I could say a guy, say, get, get me a raise. Or let me hit the, you know, I bought three tickets today. Let me hit the uh, Powerball or something like that. But the Rabbanu Shalom is not like this. At least I know what the guy really feels. No baloney over here. Not like a regular guy sitting in a shul today who's saying, you know, Ne'ilo and his mind is wandering somewhere else. You see? That's the way the Rambam portrays the way it used to be once upon a time. Okay? I mean, Moshe Rabbeinu about Ezra. Now, I, I repeat, I don't know exactly how he knows this, but that's how he sets it up. And then he goes on to say that, um, that what do you call it, that there came to be a time when this went into crisis. Okay? There came to be a time when this went into crisis. He identifies it with um, the feeling, of, I don't want to run too long with this, so I'll just start this Ramam off and I'll pick it up next time because I want to be clear that this is a Ramam imposing his narrative on a long period in Jewish history uh, in a very, very interesting way, uh, but it's a very, very neat package.
So he says, Kivan Shugol Yisrael, Vimei Nebuchadnezzar Rosh, when the Jews went into Golis by the Churm Bais Rishon, Nisarvu Baparas Vyovim Bashar Umos. They got mixed up in Paras and Persia and Greece and other nations. Now, this is, you know, uh, eliding a lot of history. Notice Nebuchadnezzar didn't exile into Persia, and the Babylonian Empire was not part of Persia, and uh, certainly not part of Greece. Uh, so you have to take this in a very broad and general way. The Ram, I told you before, is interested in neat packages, not in historical detail. That is the style of Ram. You just got to use it. It's the style of the Rambo. And so he meant what I told you earlier today, which is the diaspora begins then. The Golis begins then. And this Arvo, they, they, the Jews intermingled, meaning they found themselves physically scattered throughout all kinds of nations, Persia and Greece and other, Bashar Ha'umos. And they had children that were born in these foreign communities. And these people, their language was Nisbalbel. I don't know what he means by this. I mean, I do know what he means by this. But it's not easy to understand. And what you understand, what, what happened was that, like immigrants sometimes are, people grew up not having mastery of any single language. Uh, when I was a kid, you said a lot of these Europeans left over that came after the war and all that. And economics is true, you know, they couldn't couldn't say a whole sentence in a single language. You know, get cut from Epis by the store. Store is not a Yiddish word. Get it? You know, so you intermingle English words together with Yiddish words. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with that, but if you're a linguistic purist, oh, it's very wrong. Stick with a language. Get it right. This is always the reason the Germans hated the Yiddish. Because, you know, it's a jargon, as they say. It's a mishmash of German with other languages, all the rest of it. Get it right. Get it straight. Now, to me, heck with the Germans, you know? What's wrong with Yiddish? Nothing wrong with Yiddish. You know, somebody uh, approached me to do a, a, a history of Yiddish literature, maybe later in the summer. But um, uh, I mean, a little Yiddish language. But the point is that the Rambam suggests a scenario that you know, the, the that when the Jews moved away from Israel and are no longer speaking Hebrew, you had a linguistic problem, like you have with refugees elsewhere, which is the children who grew up didn't grow up in the old country, and therefore they speak half this and half that. Uh, it's a little bit like, now this is going to sound funny, but I don't mean it to be funny. Uh, but I have to watch my time here, although I'll spend two hours on this. It's like, you know, <clears throat> I'll, I'll, I'll address this now, and I'll pick this up next week. <clears throat> What's going on with the controversies in New York and elsewhere about state supervision of the Hasidic schools and other Haredi things like that? They don't teach English and all that. What, what's that all about? right? So what you're saying is, these schools are cheating. They're supposed to teach the English, uh, the, the children in the schools, the basic the secular knowledge, and they're not. And th- what's the result? You end up with people born over here, you know, Hasidim, born over here, and by the way, spreading to the Litvish also, as, as you know. There are more and more Litvish places, I don't want to say here, there, and there, where, you know, they want to get you know, zero high school, zero this, zero that, and just Limud Kodesh. So, so what's the point? You find somebody who was born in this country, uh, lived here all his life, can't speak English, can't speak, you know, and speaks Yiddish with a, 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 in a weird way also possibly, and speaks a funny English, right? Like they know some words, they do know other words. And Americans say, I guess, what's going on over here? Are you born over here? 
You don't know English? Right? I didn't say you should not be from. You can't speak English? That's a bazillion. You've heard that before, right? And you know other people say, no, it's good. And these kind of arguments. So the phenomenon of something born in this country. And by the way, if I'm talking about a young man, I'm talking about now it's 2021. I'm talking about somebody born around the year 2000. So that means their parents and their grandparents came here in 1945, 1955, long time ago. So the cultural insularity of a radical nature in which the kids don't know English is remarkable if you're only talking about two or three generations later, you're talking about 2021. You see? It's a long time they've been over here. You figure you're going to pick something up. But no. And if they speak English, they speak English like a greener, like somebody with a terrible accent. And in other words, and you say, where did the guy get this kind of accent from? Like I said, if you tell me you came from Hungary yesterday or from Poland or Lithuania or something like that, no. But if you're born here, especially if your parents are born here, you say, where are you born? I'm born in Muncie. Where was your father born? My father was born in Brooklyn. So, you know, what, what, what is this? Okay? What is this? The Rambam suggests that this phenomenon happened 2,500 years ago. And it happened in the context of Korban Baisrishan and the aftermath when the Jews uh, lost their state. And the Rambam is suggesting, I repeat suggesting, that when the Jews were living in Eretz Yisrael, like the kingdom of Yehuda, so since they're in their own compact country, they at least spoke Ivrit, Lush and Kodesh. That was their language. So if they wanted to pray, you could speak in Lush and Kodesh. But when they moved and intermingled with other countries, they lost their facility with um, Hebrew. And instead, you know, they picked up a jargon of Mishmash. Now, it's not exactly the same thing as Yiddish. So it's not exactly like I mentioned before with the Hasidim, because the truth of the matter is they can express themselves quite well in Yiddish. Right? They can speak Yiddish. They can express themselves quite well in English. I mean, it's not Chaim Grada, but you know, it's, it's a real spoken living language. You can express yourself 100% Yiddish. For some reason, the Rambam doesn't see that as happening at that time, 2,500 years ago. Instead, the Rambam suggests that they ended up with a, with a, jar, a garbled language in which they couldn't speak uh, a single sentence in, a, in any language. And he'll go on to say that this profoundly affected Ezra and Nehemiah. They felt it presents a crisis in Judaism. And one of the ways they went to respond to that crisis, this linguistic crisis, was by creating formal prayer. Now, this completely ignores what I said before about the fact that the Jews had already been in Bavel for 70 years. Uh, they were in the Sire of Bena Umos already from the time of Chorban Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it suggests that what Ezra did is the reason for whole Klal Yisrael, whereas in point of fact, Ezra is operating in Eretz Yisrael. The Pasuk he's going to bring, I'll show you next time, is referring to the Eretz Yisrael situation in time of Nehemiah, not to what's going on in Egypt or Greece or elsewhere. The formation of synagogues, or whatever you want to call them, Beit Knesses, Beit this, Beit that, I don't think was a function of what the Rambam was talking about. Now, I could be wrong, <laughs> like I said before. I don't know when there, you know, the, the Rama may have access to information that we didn't have. I mean, very sincerely, but he doesn't share it. He just lays this down apathetically. So we're left with a, a dangling question from the historical pers- perspective, which is what exactly were the circumstances of the rise of formal prayer that you and I are familiar with, and even in some early form, not identical with the form we have it today, uh, what were, were the rise of the particular circumstances that led to the beginnings of the beginnings of the development of this phenomenon. Uh, sorry, a long time, so 
uh, as I said before, we'll pick this uh, theme up uh, next week. And once again, thank the Stefansis for the uh, Fila uh, podcast sponsorships. And with that, I bid you a good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.